can't judge a person and it turns out you didn't have the whole story? Ever learn there was a lot more to that story than you first realized? I'm Kimberly. And I'm Rebecca. Join us as we separate the little lies from the big reputations. Welcome back, everyone. Welcome back. How was your Women's History Month? It's over now. It was good. It was a good Women's History Month. Although, I was actually talking um, to I was talking to our audience, but like I guess you have to answer because you're here. Um, <laughs> although Women's History Month ended and we got uh, basically hacked by a couple of men. Yeah, I'm glad that we've regained control over our recording studio. And those guys are out of here. How dare but wait they? Wait a way to end it. What a way to end Women hist- Women's History Month <laughs> with Rude. a couple of fools. Yes. Cute fools. Cute fools. Anyway, what's grinding my gears? Yeah, tell me. Idaho. I know what you're thinking. Who who thinks about Idaho ever? (laughs) Unless you're talking about potatoes. But Idaho. Idaho um, has decided that they are not going to pass a bill that was seeking to get um, feminine hygiene products into schools for anybody who might need it. Yeah. Apparently. Because everything's so expensive. That's something that some parents can't afford. Mm -hmm. And if you're making the decision between like dinner and pads, like you might have to pick dinner and then your kid goes to school and it's not good or they don't go to school because they're on their period. So like they can miss like a whole week of school, you know? So in Idaho, so let me back it up. In Utah, Utah passed this law and they passed the bill. And they made the products free. So I was like, oh, cool. Utah passed it. This is going to be awesome. Idaho's going to do it too. It did not happen. In Utah, this is very much in the beginning of March. Um, the bill was sponsored by a different couple of different senators, but one of them, a senator, Ann Milner, said, we need to make sure that no child is ever embarrassed. No child doesn't come to school because they don't have peer products. Uh, snaps to that. I know, right? G- good job, Ann. Good job, Ann. <laughs> But then in Idaho, they were like, hold my potato. I don't care about that. <laughs> um, they hate everybody. So there are two women in particular who have been like very vocal about how this is not their problem. One was Representative Heather Scott, who said that the bill was very liberal. And then asked, why are schools so obsessed with the private parts of our children? Um, we- weird take on that, Heather. Weird yeah. take. Yeah. I, I don't know why that's where you went, but that's where you went. So then her friend, uh, <laughs> her good buddy, <laughs> I'm assuming that they're buddies and they're just like, I fucking hate other women, don't you? And they just like eat oh. cashews together and talk about how much they hate women because her buddy, Barbara Enart, said phrases like period poverty and menstrual equity, which are used to just, which are used to describe the inability to these products yeah. are woke terms. You know what? White people stop using the word woke. I know. That's you a don't, real problem. <laughs> like You've co-opted it and it's terrible now. In, in the worst <laughs> possible way. Yeah. Like, we're not using it the way, like, it was created to be used. And not that words mm-hmm. can't change, but this is different oh, right. because yeah. this is appropriation. This is, yeah. like you said, co-opting that word and using it to equal something derogatory. Yeah, it's kind of anything that you don't like or is like too outside your view is woke. And it's like I 
periods are are a universal thing right like everyone not everyone gets them but like 50 percent of the population yeah (laughs) it doesn't matter what race you are like everybody needs a tampon at some point in time so Mm -hmm. i just don't understand why this is so hard or well yeah that's the thing is like i don't i don't get it right like going back to what you were saying that the senator in utah was talking about like we don't want these girls to be embarrassed or these these people having periods that they don't need to to be ashamed Mm -hmm. of their body but we know how teenagers can be and we also know that like nobody wants to get up and leave like a blood mark on their chair and move to next period and then you come in and you're like i gotta sit there like Mm -hmm. mm, you know as much as periods are universal and all that i'm not here to like sit in someone else's period mess (laughs) and i'm not here to like i've been that kid in class who's been like i don't have a tampon i've had to use like toilet paper did it work am i leaving a stain like and now Mm -hmm. i can concentrate on class because i'm just worried that i've like left a stain in the seat and it's like yeah. It's just insane that these two women who are maybe they have never must had, have periods had periods in their at lives. some point. Come on. There's no way that they haven't like shoved their underwear filled with toilet paper. And now they're just like, well, it didn't matter. Like, or it sucked for me. So I guess it'll suck for you, too. Like, I, I don't really get that, that mentality. mentality. I think that's what it is, because I don't understand why this is so difficult. Like schools provide paper towel and toilet paper for people to use the bathroom this is just an extension of that yeah why are you so obsessed with their genitals why do they need toilet paper for their genitals (laughs) and what's gonna end up happening is that these teachers are gonna end up purchasing these products for their students and teachers don't get paid enough or they're not going to because they're afraid of like getting in trouble for providing them with that stuff you know is that the next wave? i mean yeah because like i mean teachers are in trouble for like providing certain books so like Mm -hmm. the next wave is like oh my god you provided a pad are you trying to touch my child oh my god i can't this place is yeah when it comes to like policies on people's bodies and healthcare, we are a giant mess on a win for healthcare, i guess on a personal level um i did finally managed to get an appointment with a therapist i've been trying to do that for like months you Um, have every time i like i remember calling a while back and they're like we have a two-month waiting list and then like i never called back Mm -hmm. but they certainly never called me to be like hey you've made it through our waiting list this time I called, I was like, oh, you put me on a two month waiting list again. I'm going to call two months mm-hmm. and like one day later. <laughs> I guess they're like, well, if you really needed it, you would call back, which sounds crappy. Like there should be someone checking that list because you did call in the first place and mm-hmm. you needed it. And yeah. like, I get it. There's a lot of people on that list, I assume, and not a lot of therapists that, you know, because mm-hmm. they, you can only listen to so many people (laughs) per day or week i imagine i don't know i wonder if there was like a lot of therapist burnout during the oh i'm sure yeah i mean i know a couple of therapists myself Mm. um not my own but friends and i mean i know for certain that they see their own therapists yeah i don't i don't think i know a therapist who doesn't also have a therapist (laughs) i feel like you need to be able to like dump that like you like empty the the vacuum at the end of the day if you will like mm-hmm. you need to be able to get that out somewhere yeah 
Yeah. I don't know. It's everything. Everything is a mess. <laughs> Feminism <I wonder laughs> and policies and healthcare and all of that stuff is still a mess. And it, I feel like it's always been a fight, right? Yeah. But like, why? Like, why are we always in survival mode? Like, it's, it's frustrating and it's, this is not what anybody came here to hear. <laughs> yeah. It's just no. It's just so frustrating. It just seems like every time something maybe goes right, like someone comes and decides, oh no, that was a, a bridge too far, and now we're going to overcorrect, and you can't do anything. You can't even have these books in your classroom. You can't decide if your kid, you know, can be gender nonconforming. Like it's it's just it's but, really crazy and it's really frustrating. I don't really know what to do about it besides vent and make a podcast <laughs> and make a podcast well that's what i was gonna say is like this has been going on so long and like the things that you're saying the cycles and all of this and the like mm-hmm. we get a little bit and then it gets shut down like it goes back to this woman that we're talking about today right i mean we're discussing mary wollstonecraft today and she's considered one of the world's first women's rights activists but um or at least in the western world let's be specific yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and and I know she had to deal with a lot of these issues as well. So you mean it never stops? Yeah, that's what I mean. Yeah. Well, so like you said, we're going to be talking about Mary today. So we're going to we're going to talk about how the world reacted to her and her writings and her new age ideas, and then we're going to discuss how those ideas impacted her own daily life and the culture of the 1700s. Lastly, we'll reflect on how her words influence others throughout time. So just some trigger warnings for attempted suicide and actual suicide. Mary Wollstonecraft, later Mary Wollstonecraft Godwin, was born April 27, 1759 in England. She was a self-educated Enlightenment writer, philosopher, and advocate for women's rights. Yes, an advocate for women's rights in the 18th century. They did exist. (laughs) The Enlightenment period was also known as the Age of Reason. Mary and other writers focus on writing about scientific, political, and philosophical debates. Today, Mary is considered one of the founding feminist philosophers, and many feminist and women's studies scholars cite her works as important influences on feminism. But she wasn't always held in such high regard, but we'll get there. Yeah. Wollstonecraft was the second of seven children. Her parents were Elizabeth Dixon and Edward John Wollstonecraft. While the early years of her childhood were comfortable, her father, a violent, drunk, and abusive man, gradually squandered all of the money the family had away. Because of this, the family had constant money problems, and they were forced to move. Their situation eventually became so bad that her father demanded that she turn over what would be her future inheritance money. Rude. Yeah. (laughs) Why are men? Yeah. Uh, as a teenager, Wollstonecraft used to sleep outside of her mother's bedroom to protect her from her father. She also played a maternal role for her younger sisters throughout their lives. In 1778, at the age of 19, Wollstonecraft left home and took a job as a lady's companion to a widow named Sarah Dawson. They didn't get along that well, and in 1780, she returned home to take care of her dying mother. She opted to not return to Dawson's home. <laughs> Oops. Forgot to go back. (laughs) Do you think this Sarah Dawson lived off of a creek? (laughs) 
it took you a second <laughs> well mostly because my zoom cut out but <laughs> yes i <laughs> put the pieces <laughs> together and it hurts me no it's good 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 i'll get i'll give you props for that one <laughs> so instead of returning to the creek maybe um she moved in with the blood family Ooh. That's an unfortunate last name. It's. I mean, listen, this next lady is about to have an unfortunate first name. Fanny Blood. (laughs) Especially if you're British. Yeah, right? (laughs) Well, I mean, I wonder when that became a term for for like actual butts. Well, it's butts in in the US, but a fanny in in the UK is actually like your vagina. woman i wonder when it became bloody vagina fanny blood uh we're 13 years old okay (laughs) fanny blood with the unfortunate name or fortunate maybe nobody like knew back then they were just like it's just yeah i mean all the richards used to be dick right and i don't think people use that nickname as much anymore so true unless the person is being a dick well yes like a double (laughs) then it's a joke yes Okay. Anyway. anyway, back to Fanny. Fanny Blood. She was one of uh, Wollstonecraft's closest friends, and she remains dedicated to Fanny and her family throughout the remainder of her life. Blood and Wollstonecraft had big dreams. They imagined renting rooms together and supporting one another both emotionally and financially. Unfortunately, given their economic situation at the time, this was not possible. Instead, Wollstonecraft, Blood, and Mary's sister Eliza decided to set up a school together. This was a starting point for many of Wollstonecraft's quote-unquote radical ideas about the need for, you know, things like equality and education for boys and girls. She believed that the government was responsible for remedying this inequality. I think it's funny because, like, it's radical now. So you're right about the cycles. Like, things just come back. So Fanny got married and then moved to Portugal for health reasons. And this is the second person that we've talked about that their doctor told them to move somewhere like really fancy and exotic for health reasons. And I need a referral because I'm looking to leave the U.S. Yeah, this time reasons. (laughs) Yeah, but this time I don't think it works so well. (laughs) No, I mean, she did die. Unfortunately, her health got worse. Um, Then she got pregnant and then she died. Yeah. Poor Fanny. Anyway, Wollstonecraft had left England to help Fanny, and as a result of her abandoning the school, the school failed. <laughs> Yikes. Things, things were, it was, it was a bad couple of years. It was a really <laughs> bad couple of years for them. So Fanny did become the inspiration for Wollstonecraft's first novel, Mary A. Fiction. Wollstonecraft then turned to working as a governess. This only lasted a year as she was frustrated with the limited career opportunities available to women who were poor but respectable. Sam. Same. I mean, we do have a few more options now than just like, like ladies companion or governess or <laughs> what? But for but for how long? But for how long, Rebecca? Yeah. Well, if those senators in in Idaho have anything to say about it, this not is a long. dystopian. This is a dystopian podcast about how it's all going to be Handmaid's Tale soon. Well, this job as a governess, though, it did inspire the views that she presented in a book that she wrote called Thoughts on the Education of Daughters, which was published in 1787. This is when she decided to pursue a career writing full time. It was a really big deal because there were very few women who were doing this at the time and who could support themselves through writing. She started out translating texts from French and German into English. First off, how many languages did she speak? Because that's very impressive. (laughs) Good for her. So then she moved into writing reviews of novels, 
She later moved to London um, and she expanded the intellectual company that she kept. She met famous writers like Thomas Paine and philosophers like William Godwin. Wollstonecraft was not a trained historian, but she used journals, letters, and other primary documents to write about the reactions of ordinary French citizens to the French Revolution. Her most well-known work is arguably A Vindication of the Rights of Woman, which calls for women and men to be educated equally. It was published in 1792 and is, today anyway, considered a classic of feminism. In it, Wollstonecraft argued that the educational system at the time deliberately trained girls to be frivolous and incapable women. She suggested that if the educational system allowed girls the same advantages as boys, it would result in women who not only would be exceptional wives and mothers, but also capable workers in other professions. Her argument, outrageous at the time, was that women were capable of <gasps> reason and that they deserved to have that recognized. <laughs> I mean, how dare... I, I'm just picturing some old man with like a monocle reading this and like gasping and like dropping the monocle and like <laughs> they want to be educated with us. They, oh. they think they have reason. <laughs> I mean, she was not the first feminist to make such a plea. Uh, if you subscribe to our Patreon, you can learn about an earlier feminist icon next week when we cover one such individual. But her work was unique because it suggested that the way to better the status of women in society was through radical educational reform. We're talking about policies at the start of the episode, and mm -hmm. this is what she's trying to do is get policy changes. So some of her other very notable works included Mary, a fiction from 1788, a historical and moral view of the origin and progress of the French Revolution, 1795. Letters written during a short residence in Sweden, Norway, and Denmark, published in 1796. Maria, or the Wrongs of Woman, published posthumously in 1798. And uh, also during her lifetime, she gave birth to two daughters, Fanny and Mary, uh, and we'll get back to them in the next section. So Wollstonecraft died on September 10th, 1797, less than two weeks after the birth of her second daughter, Mary. The cause of death was septicemia or a sepsis. Basically, it's when your blood gets poisoned by bacteria. In Mary's case, her placenta broke and became infected. Yeah, and 1797 medical care was... Uh, Probably a lot like Idaho in 2023. <laughs> they were just like, I, I don't know, get the shovels, I guess. Oof. Yeah. Wollstonecraft's husband, William Godwin, wrote of her death, I firmly believe there does not exist her equal in the world. I know from experience we were formed to make each other happy. I have not the least expectation that I can now ever know happiness again. Aww. I kind of love seeing that, like, that very emotional reaction from a man yeah. in the 18th century like this. I feel like right. it's he not that common. <laughs> no, he wasn't just like, ugh, now I got to get another wife to take care of these kids. Like, he was <laughs> like, my wife is gone and she was great and I'm really going to miss her and I'm sad about it. I'm sure there were people like, ooh, grow up. Like, <laughs> are you sad about your dead wife? <laughs> I think I'm they sure. were busy being scandalized by the other things in that book, but we'll get to that. Sure. Mary was buried in St. Pancras Old Church, and her tombstone reads, Mary Wollstonecraft Godwin, author of A Vindication of the Rights of Woman. In terms of the perception of Wollstonecraft, it's really a toss-up as to what she's better known for. Her writing 
or her love life, the so-called scandals surrounding it, and her mental health. Until at least the 20th century, the answer was definitely that her unconventional personal relationships received way more attention than her writing. One early defining moment in her life was when in 1784, she convinced her sister Eliza, who was likely suffering from postpartum depression at the time, to leave her husband and her infant. Mary made all the arrangements for Eliza to leave. She saw it as a way to challenge social norms, but Eliza paid a high price at that time. She suffered social condemnation and was unable to remarry. This led to a life of poverty for her. Yeah, it's a risk to take in the 1700s. Yeah, I just, and, and was Mary just like, oh, whoops. <laughs> well, <laughs> sorry I mean, about that. To be fair, they did, they were connected and still close throughout mm-hmm. life. So I guess there was something there, you but still. would have to be. Yeah, if, you like, owe your sister that at that point. Yeah. I mean, I'm not saying she forced her, but like, she was very heavy handed in this decision and it backfired. So like. Yeah, like you're you're going to brunch with me all the time. Like you're the person I hang out with now because you helped me. To now, to be fair, I don't know much about like what Eliza's husband was like, how he was treating her. I mean, there could have been True. very, very good reasons for her to encourage that, but um, the consequences were still very extreme. Yes. Wollstonecraft herself began a relationship, the details of which are unclear, with an artist named Henry Fuseli in 1792. She was enchanted by him and, in her own words, by, quote, the grandeur of his soul, that quickness of comprehension and lovely sympathy. So (laughs) I love this story here. One day she goes to Fuseli's wife because, you know, of course he was married. Mm -hmm. Uh, His wife is Sophia Rollins. And proposed a platonic living arrangement in which she would move in with the couple. (laughs) But Sophia was appalled and Fuseli broke off the relationship with Wollstonecraft. After this rejection, Mary decided to travel to France to escape the humiliation of the incident. I'm embarrassed. Let me flee to France. (laughs) (laughs) This is where she began participating in revolutionary events. So Wollstonecraft had written A Vindication of the Rights of Men in 1790. Her most and her most famous work, A Vindication of the Rights of Woman. I'm not going to get over that. Like, (laughs) it's very weird. Eh, I think there was something in the research that I can't remember exactly, but it did explain how it was like men specifically. And then like, like, you know how people say like, um, like the rights of man for mankind. Okay. I think the woman is supposed to be more of like womankind here, but I'm not positive. I don't mm. remember exactly. <laughs> I feel like if she would have put kind, that would have helped. <laughs> I mean, she could have just put woman kind and then boom, we all got it. Anyway, that book came out in 1792 and She was determined to put her ideas from the second text to the test through her romantic relationship with the American adventurer, Gilbert Imlay. Side note, American adventurer really just sounds like a rich kid spending his parents' money. Like, it it, it also sounds like trouble. Like, girl, no. (laughs) It sounds like Indiana Jones. I mean... Maybe he was a professor. He was a professor, but I don't know if you could like people knew he was a professor, like Doctor Jones, right? That's what his name was. Was Doctor Jones? (laughs) 
And so I'm sorry. Are you shaming Gilbert because he wasn't a doctor? You don't know how much of an American adventure he was. I don't. But I just I feel like it's a red flag if that's your job title. <laughs> that's like like a playboy or something. Yeah, I mean, I most it. of them were philosophers and that's kind of a red mm-hmm. flag, too. But like American adventure, extra red. Yeah. Like, what is that? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> because at least Indiana Jones was like. He's an archaeologist, right? Yeah, no, something like that. He's like that guy from that movie that I can't think of with Spider-Man and Mark Wahlberg. And it's based on a video game. Are there, no, they're just thieves. They're thieves. They're trying to steal gold. They're not American adventurers. They're just thieves. Never mind. Okay. Maybe this guy was just a thief. Anyway, Wollstonecraft put her principles into practice by sleeping with Imlay. Like you do. You know. <laughs> Even though they weren't married, which, you know, another red flag for the time. This, of course, was unacceptable for a respectable British woman. Whether or not she wanted to marry him, he wasn't interested in marriage. No, because he's like a criminal from America who's here to steal things. <laughs> I've made up my mind about him. Okay. Now, remember, Wollstonecraft had met Imlay in France. This was the period of the French Revolution known as the Reign of Terror. The Reign of Terror was a series of massacres and public executions that took place in response to revolutionary actions. So why does this matter? Well, because Wollstonecraft was a British citizen who was friendly with the French groups in support of abolishing the monarchy. Oh, and um, there was a British blockade of goods to France, and Wollstonecraft's lover, Imlay, was taking advantage of that by bringing American goods to France and selling them at a premium to those who still had money. He is a criminal. <laughs> He's a criminal. To protect Wollstonecraft, again, who's British, he falsely claimed that he had married her in a statement to the U.S. Embassy in Paris. At the time, this automatically made her a U.S. citizen, so she was less at risk than she would be as a British citizen. Then the inevitable happened. Like it always does, Wollstonecraft got pregnant. And who was the father? Criminal Imlay, of course. <laughs> But remember, they're not really married. They're not technically married. Yeah. So on May 14th, 1794, Mary gave birth to her first child, Fanny Imlay, who, of course, was named after her closest friend, Fanny Blood. Shortly after, Imlay left, like criminals do. <laughs> he was unhappy with Wollstonecraft's maternal and domestic-minded side. What does that even mean? He was not, he just wanted her to be his lover, not a mother and like to care about anyone except him. What did he think? She was going to throw the baby in the river? Like, oh, we made this thing together and now you want to take care of it? Ugh. Where's the, where's the hot girl who used to go to clubs with me? Exactly. He probably blamed her for getting pregnant too. Oh my God. Yeah. I mean, probably. So Imlay promised that he would return to her and Fanny, but he started to stay away for longer and write less. Wollstonecraft was convinced that he had found another woman. Some scholars have considered Wollstonecraft's letters to Imlay to be an expression of her depression, while others say that her tone was a result of the fact that she was a foreign woman alone with an infant in the middle of a revolution. Why not both? In April of 1795, Wollstonecraft returned to London to find Imlay. And surprise, surprise, he rejected her. In May of that same year, she attempted suicide with an attempted overdose of laudanum, which is basically opium plus alcohol. <laughs> Jesus. Uh, ironically, it was Imlay who saved her life. 
But Argel still wasn't quite ready to see the truth. In a last-ditch effort to win back Imlay, Wollstonecraft basically went on a business trip for him in Scandinavia. And when you talk about criminal, I think this <laughs> plays into it. Mm -mm. She was trying to find some Norwegian captain who had swiped some silver that Imlay was trying to smuggle. So, like, yeah, you know, not a dangerous trip at all, right? And, and who went with her on this trip? Her daughter, Fanny, and her maid, Marguerite. I mean... At least Marguerite could watch the baby while she went to get the silver. I don't know, but... I mean, it's a good cover. It's like, <laughs> are you here to steal silver? No, I'm with my baby and my maid. Of course I'm not stealing silver. <laughs> oh, um... But meanwhile, there's like silver in the diaper bag. Right? <laughs> oh, and um, spoiler alert, it did not work. Emily did not take Damn her it. bag. Wait, did she get the silver? <laughs> I don't know. She must have. Oh. <laughs> what? Could you... Um, I would have stabbed him in the neck with the silver if I did all that and you were still like, mm, thanks, thanks, babe. Uh, but I'm sticking with leaving? this one instead. She doesn't have a baby. <laughs> Ooh, man. Yeah. See, this is, this is, I will get to it, but these are the things that like, people are like, oh, she was for women's rights, but then she did stuff like this. And it's like, yeah, you could be wrong and right at the same exactly. time. Exactly. And you also, again, as we've mentioned multiple times in many of our episodes, we have to think about the time period. And it is yes. like, as she saw with her sister, it's really mm. difficult to survive. And, you know, you may not believe in like marriage, but that doesn't mm -hmm. mean you don't want to have sex and have a partner. Right. Yeah. Or that you don't live in a society that strongly believes in marriage and you kind of have to go along to get along. Mm -hmm. yeah. So that's important. But this is another important side note. Um, she did continue to refer to herself as Mrs. Emley, if only to bestow legitimacy on her daughter, because that was a thing that was super frowned upon. Right. Yeah. So gradually, Wollstonecraft returned to writing and her literary life. This is the beginning of Mary's relationship with the philosopher and anarchist movement supporter William Godwin. This courtship between the two began in 1796 and started out slowly, but eventually became a passionate love affair. Godwin had read Mary's book Letters Written in Sweden, Norway, and Denmark and loved it. He later wrote, If ever there was a book calculated to make a man in love with its author, this appears to be the book. She speaks of her sorrows in a way that fills us with melancholy and dissolves us in tenderness at the same time that displays a genius, which commands all of our admiration. Like, okay, Goodwin. Like, he was really so smitten, but also, like, in awe of her mm -hmm. mind. And I feel like sometimes you have to put up with the Imlay to appreciate a Goodwin. Or a Godwin. <laughs> or a Godwin. Goodwin, Godwin. This is not a religious podcast, so I can't say Godwin. Okay. <laughs> god lose <laughs> <laughs> no it's all the years of catholic school it's like uh enough with that guy yeah <laughs> okay so the book that he's referring to letters written in sweden norway and denmark was a deeply personal travel narrative that wollstonecraft had written during her trip you know that trip she took for Amway. <laughs> is this is the gold to the silver trip uh-huh Oh, my God, girl. <clears throat> anyway, it includes 25 letters that cover a number of topics in which Wollstonecraft explores the relationship between the self and society. At least something good came out of that trip. Right? Wollstonecraft became pregnant again. But this time, the baby daddy agreed that the two should be married, so their child would actually be legitimate. Great idea, but it did reveal one truth about Wollstonecraft that people weren't aware of. She and Emily had never been married. This caused the new couple, Godwin and Wollstonecraft, to lose a number of friends. 
if they're not going to be your friends, if you are fake married, then they're not your real friends. <laughs> Maybe they're mad that they like were invited to this fake wedding and like got a gift. And they're like, you didn't even really get married and we got you China. <laughs> How dare you? So the other issue the both of them had written against marriage in the past. So many saw this as a betrayal of those beliefs and criticized them for it. But like, whatever happens, you're learning new things and like adjusting your views. It sounds like less people to invite to like the real wedding. <laughs> the two were married on March 29th, 1797. They got a place together, but Godwin also rented an apartment down the street as a study so they could still maintain their independence from one another. And like... I love that. After two years in a pandemic, living in, or living and working from home. <laughs> like, I, yes, please. Sign me up. I support that idea. Yeah. Sometimes you need to just be elsewhere. By all accounts, their marriage was happy and stable, but it was also very brief. Mary died 11 days after the birth of her second daughter, who Godwin named Mary. That's a thing they did back then, right? They, like, I mean, to name your child, it wasn't just, like, juniors in the mail, Mm-hmm. line but like women were often named after their mothers i don't like it i don't like what anybody does it it feels weird i have an aunt who's named after my grandmother but the funny thing about it is she's the fourth daughter <laughs> they ran out of names well there were two more that came after so they managed oh. to find <laughs> a few more <laughs> i don't know i don't, i feel like putting like names it's a lot of pressure it is and a lot of pressure also, Especially in a this day and age with divorces can lead to um, almost like a a guilt that the child carries because they oh, like man. carry the name of someone that like a parent dislikes. I don't know. I never thought about that. I do think about identity theft though, because <laughs> you can just be like, "Yeah, me and my kid have the same name," so like, here's this credit card. I'm sure that's happened. I remember once I had to call. I was in elementary school. I was this kid, Pedro, and I needed to, like, get, like, notes or something or, like, discuss something with him. So I, like, called this, the number that he gave me and, like, some girl answered. And I was like, oh, can I speak to Pedro? And she's like, yeah, sure. And then this, like, man answered. And I was just like, um, um. And he's like, oh, you want little Pedro. Hold on a second. And it was so funny. But maybe that's my real <laughs> issue. I was so floored. I was like, this is an old man that I'm speaking to. Like, what is happening? Where is my friend Pedro? This makes no sense. But Pedro's phone voice uh, ages yeah. him <laughs> I 20 was like, years. What page is the math over? No, I was just like, <laughs> I was like, I have to go. This is not what I, this is not what I wanted. So back to Mary. All of this happened in her lifetime. Uh, but it wasn't until after her death that society really got into the real Mary Wollstonecraft. After her death, Godwin published a book called Memoir in 1798. This book recounted her life's her life, including elements of her unorthodox lifestyle. This is what really did her in. Now, Godwin was still grieving when he wrote this biography, which basically killed her reputation overnight. Her enemies loved it. This was the proof they were looking for that she was a whore. Or, as writer Horace Walpole put it, a hyena in petticoats. Are petticoats pants? No, are they they're like, the... Or is it like an actual jacket? I th Now I don't know, but I think it's the like underskirt. Like oh. the thing that makes your skirt puff out. Yes, you're right. You're absolutely right. Weird. <laughs> I, mean, I guess the hyena part's weirder, but... Yeah, you think? <laughs> Go off Horace. He probably thought like 
that was the, the sickest burn. Like, he probably, like, kept telling people that he wrote that. Mm-hmm. Ugh. So, Mary had received positive reaction to a vindication of the rights of women in her own social circles, but otherwise, they were all pretty negative. And after her death, it only got worse. Godwin's decision to be open and honest about his description of his own relationship with Wollstonecraft, along with that of Imlay and Wollstonecraft's illegitimate child, caused a big scandal. This also meant that Wollstonecraft's literary, literary legacy was disregarded, which, like, has to suck most of all. Like, mm-hmm. It's like, oh, now we all hate you. Everything you've done before, throw it in the trash because you're ruined. When her first daughter, Fanny, took her own life as a result of an unhappy relationship and her second daughter, Mary, eloped with the poet Percy Bysshe Shelley, society was quick to blame Wollstonecraft's feminist principles. Principles is a much kinder phrase than what they used at the time, but you get it. Yeah. 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 There's a fantastic book by Sadie Doyle called Trainwreck, which in it, the author dedicates a good 10 pages to the Wollstonecraft scandal. So we pulled some great quotes from the book that we wanted to share to wrap up this section. So one of them is, to this day, it's hard to say why Godwin did what he did. It could have been political conviction or the hazy judgment of fresh grief or simply the inability to understand that anyone might dislike the woman he loved. (laughs) I kind of like that. Like the idea that he was like, yo, this woman was amazing and I need to get all the amazing things that she did written down so people know and people are like actually she was trash and we hate her and he's like but why well he didn't really help his own cause right he published uh, doyle goes on to say godwin published the old suicide note he published wollstonecraft's tender recollections of sex he published the bitter breakup letters in which wollstonecraft told imlay he was a sex crazed loveless asshole who would turn into a sad old man all of it everything It was out there, and it was attached to a woman who had argued, of all things, that emancipating women would make them more virtuous. What happened? Like, what, maybe, like, she was like, I've always hated you, and then she died. Like, it feels like, it feels like Regina George in Mean Girls. Like, he was like, there's the burn book for everybody. But, like, it doesn't make sense that he would do it with malicious intent. I think he really thought he was doing something good and I, just had no idea that, like, women were treated differently? I don't know. I don't, I don't, but <laughs> I, that's the thing. Like, he's also, he's he's a philosopher too, right? Yeah. So, like, he knows. He's in the same world. So, like, mm-hmm. part of me is like, oh, he wanted to show all the good things about her that he thought were good, but, like, people didn't think were good. But then, like, her suicide note? Bro, what? Like, why would you... Why would you share that? Like, that's one, incredibly private. Two, people already were kind of on the fence about her writing. I don't understand what he thought, unless he was just clueless. And he was also grieving. So, you know, to him, it was like anything and everything about her, maybe. I don't Uh, know. I'm not. Maybe you're supposed to wait like a year before you make big changes when you're grieving or something. So, like, maybe. Don't write a book about your deceased spouse until at least a year has passed. Doyle also says, when Vindication was first published, it seemed that women's rights would be naturally folded into the discussion of human rights, part and parcel of the increasing democratization of culture. But after the memoir, they dropped out of view. They go on to say, the prediction that her work would be read with particular revulsion by females was correct. It was women, in fact, who increasingly drove the shaming of Wollstonecraft in an effort to avoid being associated with her disgrace. Isn't it always? 
Yeah. I mean, internalized, internalized misogyny yeah. is real. While she may have written the first book of Western feminist theory, she also had the train wreck that functionally derailed the feminist movement for 100 years. <laughs> Yikes. Yeah. Doyle finishes up this section saying, Godwin's memoir didn't affect Wollstonecraft's reputation. It was her reputation, more or less until the dawn of the 20th century. While most of the scandal around Wollstonecraft had to do with her personal life, a lot of the truths about her can be seen in and through her writing. Wollstonecraft was heavily influenced by Enlightenment thinkers and believed in progress over tradition and custom. She supported a middle-class ethos as opposed to what she saw as the vice-ridden aristocratic code of manners. She argued for rationality while also envisioning a utopian picture of society. So let's go back to Wollstonecraft's early life. So she had two key friendships that shaped her life, Jane Arden and Fanny Blood. Arden and Wollstonecraft often read books together and attended lectures presented by Arden's father, a philosopher and scientist. Wollstonecraft loved the intellectual vibes of Jane's home and valued their friendship. And Wollstonecraft credits Blood, who we've already discussed, with opening her mind to possibilities beyond society's expectations. I just have this feeling like maybe they were actually lovers, but I don't Honestly, know. Honestly, I kind of got it's that giving feeling with that, right? <laughs> yeah, because they wanted to like live together and like build a school and stuff. And I was like, all right. <laughs> they wanted to support each other. For, I don't want to support anybody financially. Like <laughs> what? Like that's a conversation. Hey, we should live together and, and support each other financially. You're dating. You're in yeah, love. That's what that is. That's what that is. No, we're just best friends. Okay. Wollstonecraft's early works are about education. For example, she assembled an anthology of literary works called The Female Reader, which was intended for the improvement of young women. She also wrote a book on conduct called Thoughts on the Education of Daughters. She was an advocate for educating all children on issues of self-discipline, honesty, frugality, and social contentment. She believed that teaching children to reason was extremely important. This book in particular promoted the education of women, which was still a controversial topic at that time, and one she would revisit in the future. Mary also wrote two novels during her lifetime. We spoke about them before. Mary, a fiction, and Maria or The Wrongs of a Woman in 1798. Both criticized the patriarchal institutions of marriage and its negative effects on women. They also celebrated female friendships. Like lesbian ones. I really think that maybe <laughs> she was a lesbian. Hmm. At least bisexual, because she definitely was getting on with some men, but free yeah. love. <laughs> exactly. I mean, gender. What is it? Not gender, but like sexuality. Gen- it's like a, all of that stuff is a spectrum. Mm-hmm. You like who you like. It's a construct and a spectrum. In the first novel, the heroine is forced into a loveless marriage for economical reasons. She fulfills her desire for love and affection with two passionate romantic friendships, one with a man and the other one with a woman. The writing is on the wall. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure there were no sex scenes, but it's there. (laughs) The second novel was published after her death and was unfinished. It's often considered her most radical feminist work and revolves around a woman imprisoned in an insane asylum by her husband. This protagonist also finds satisfaction outside of marriage. It is one of the first times in feminist literature that we see hints that women of different social and economic classes share interests by virtue of being women. So while Mary was in France, she was heavily involved with the ideals of the French Revolution and the faith that 
and the faith in its ability to succeed. In response to one political conservative critique of the revolution, Wollstonecraft wrote A Vindication of the Rights of Men, which attacks the aristocracy. This was Wollstonecraft's first overtly political and feminist work. This is where she discovered the subject that would take over her writing for the rest of her career. It is also the text that made her a well-known writer. Even after becoming pregnant with her first child and being a new mother alone in a foreign country during the French Revolution, thanks Imlay, Hmm. she continued to write all the time. She wrote a history of the early years of the revolution called An Historical and Moral View of the French Revolution. As part of this text, Wollstonecraft wrote about Marie Antoinette as a victim of the aristocracy. While philosopher Edmund Burke considered Marie Antoinette a victim of a revolutionary mob, Wollstonecraft portrayed the queen as a femme fatale, labeling her as a seductive, scheming, and dangerous woman. Which, at first glance, kind of sounds judgy as hell, but... She goes on to argue that it is the values of the aristocracy that corrupted women in a monarchy because the woman's main purpose was to do nothing more than birth the next male heir to the throne. Mm -hmm. So basically what she's saying is that the queen was seen as nothing more than a womb and that by emphasizing her body and her ability to charm over her mind and character, the monarchy had encouraged women like Marie Antoinette to be manipulative and ruthless. Facts. Yeah. Uh, British historian Tom Furness called this book the most neglected of Wollstonecraft's books. He also considers it her best, but later generations were more interested in her feminist writings. He appreciated how she was trying to counteract the anti-revolutionary mood in Britain, which depicted the revolution as caused by the French going mad. Wollstonecraft's book argued instead that the revolution arose from social, economic, and political conditions that left no other option for the French people. Now, next up, let's talk a little more about what happened after she wrote letters written during a short residence in Sweden, Norway, and Denmark from 1796. When Mary returned to England, as you mentioned, she realizes that Imlay is not going to take her back. She attempted to take her life for the second time and left a note for Imlay. The note goes, Let my wrongs sleep with me. Soon, very soon, shall I be at peace. When you receive this, my burning head will be cold. I shall plunge into the Thames, where there is the least chance of being snatched from the death I seek. God bless you. May you never know by experience what you have made me endure. Should your sensibility ever awake, remorse will find its way to your heart. And in the midst of business and sensual pleasure, I shall appear before you, the victim of your deviation from rectitude. Wollstonecraft went out on a rainy night and jumped into the Thames. And while Imlay did not save her this time, a stranger saw her jump and rescued her. So, like, this is giving, like, Titanic. This have been, this could have been her, like, true love story. Like, where was the person who saved her? I mean, they're probably like, this woman jumped into the Thames. I, she's probably got stuff going on I don't want to deal with. <laughs> they could have been like, I could save you. I'm going to show you a whole new world. <laughs> like Jack almost did. Well, I, I love Doyle's reaction to this, right? In Trainwreck, they write... Mary Wollstonecraft was over a century ahead of her time on women's education and twice as far ahead on women's sexual freedom. She still thought she'd rather drown than not have a boyfriend. Yikes. I mean, it depends on your emotional state. You know, like you said, you can do the right things and you can do the wrong things. And yeah. And you never know what you're going to do in the moment. Like, she was probably so distraught. Yeah. So let's talk about a vindication of the rights of woman. So while she wrote this in 1792, we wanted to save it for last because it's a big one. So this one is hands down her most famous and influential work. 
It is one of the earliest works of feminist philosophy. And while it caused a lot of controversy when it was first published, it failed to bring about any immediate reform. Wollstonecraft's arguments were often ahead of their time and even ahead of our time in some regards. We kind of addressed that early on Mm -hmm. in the episode. (laughs) Uh, For example, in chapter 12, entitled On National Education, she recommends the establishment of a national education system. She argues that it's essential for women's dignity that they be given the right and ability to earn their own living and to support themselves. She argues that women should have an education that corresponds with the position in society and claims that women are essential to the nation as they educate its children and and because they would become the companions to their husbands rather than just wives. Wollstonecraft mentions that women are human beings who deserve the same fundamental rights as men. They are not objects or property. What? It makes me think of, um, and I'm just going to throw this book recommendation out there, or it's two books. It's about a society... Uh, a Latino society in which wealthy husbands marry two wives, one to be their intellectual equal and one to be like basically their baby mom. <laughs> yeah. 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 Oh, I mean, it definitely takes a good spin on that. Like it, it, it dismantles that mm. and it, it doesn't support that. But um, I can't think of the titles right now, but when I do, uh, I'll tweet it out for y'all. Large portions of Wollstonecraft's book are a a response to male writers of conduct books who wish to deny women an education. In the book, Wollstonecraft states that many women are silly and superficial. She describes them as spaniels and toys, which sounds like a big yikes, but again, similar to the Marie Antoinette thing, she has an explanation for this. She argues that it's not because of an innate deficiency in the minds of women, but rather because men have denied them access to an education. She addresses the limitations that women's so-called educations have caused. She writes, taught from their infancy that beauty is women's scepter, the mind shapes itself to the body and roaming round its gilt cage, only seeks to adorn its prison. This implies like that with proper encouragement, women could achieve so much more. While Wollstonecraft calls for the equality among the sexes in certain areas like morality, she does not explicitly state that men and women are equal. I mean, it's the 18th century and we'll cut her a little bit of slack, but she definitely makes statements about respecting the superiority of masculine strength and valor and that men seem to be designed by providence to attain a greater degree of virtue so yeah (laughs) yeah i know like these kind of statements do make it a little bit difficult at times to classify wollstonecraft as a modern feminist but mostly because this word didn't come into existence until another century yeah (laughs) she definitely wasn't going around calling herself a feminist because that wasn't a word Mm -mm. Wollstonecraft does not argue that reason and feelings should act independently of each other rather she believes that they should They should inform each other. In addition to the larger philosophical arguments laid out in the book, she also shares a specific educational plan, as we briefly mentioned a moment ago. She thinks education should take place at what she calls a country day school, but also at home in order to, as she says, inspire a love of home and domestic pleasures. And of course, she argues that schooling should be co-educational and based on the same model. One thing to note, however, is that this text addresses the middle class and is influenced by a bourgeois view of the world. Yes, it attacks the uselessness of the aristocracy and encourages modesty and industry, 
But she's not necessarily speaking to the poor here. For example, at one point she suggests that after age nine, the poor, except those who are brilliant, should be separated from the rich and taught in another school. Big yikes. Yeah. <laughs> like you're just like going around. Test it. I guess you like test the kids and you're like, cool, you're too smart to be here. Oh, wait. So you're saying this is what we do in the modern world, too? Yes. Motherfucker. <laughs> oh, no. She, I mean, she was right. So certainly not a perfect text, but definitely a, an advanced and controversial one for its time. So while Mary may not, not have been well received by everyone who read her works, there were a few people who were definitely fans or at least were inspired by her writings. Some of those people were John and Abigail Adams. Apparently, they read her works carefully. Aaron Burr. I mean, okay, maybe he's not the most well-liked guy, especially even after Hamilton. <laughs> he had his reasons. But he actually had a portrait of Wollstonecraft in his home, and he educated his daughter following the theories that Wollstonecraft preached in her writing. So that's pretty oh, cool. Yeah, I, I like him a little bit more. <laughs> I mean, you like him because he's portrayed by Leslie Odom Jr. <laughs> that and also when I first saw Hamilton, I was like, he has a point. Nope. Like this guy got like pushed over a lot like he, i think that was the point of it like he burr has a point so <laughs> anyway we're not this is not our hamilton fan fiction podcast which it could be because i have to talk about hamilton all day but anyway while it's not confirmed that jane austen a writer of a generation after wollstonecraft was a fan there does seem to be numerous positive allusions to her work in austen's writing so Pride and Prejudice, Elizabeth Bennett's thoughts on female accomplishments seem to echo those of Wollstonecraft's. In Sense and Sensibility, the balance a woman must find between feeling and reason is similar to Wollstonecraft's novel Mary. Then in Mansfield Park, the moral equivalence that is drawn between slavery and the treatment of women in society is similar to things Wollstonecraft wrote, namely that marriage is enslavement. And finally, in Persuasion, the characterization of Anne Elliot as better qualified than her father to manage the family estate is reminiscent of Wollstonecraft's beliefs. Other women who were inspired by her and her works include the poetry of Elizabeth Barrett Browning, Lucretia Mott, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, and George Eliot. But overall, as we mentioned, her writings were largely ignored or even openly rejected until the turn of the 20th century with the emergence of the feminist movement. The blame for this, as we mentioned, could largely be attributed to the 1798 publication of memoirs by William Godwin. He thought he was portraying his wife with love, compassion, and sincerity, but most readers were pretty shocked that he would spill all the tea like that. He revealed the illegitimacy of Wollstone's first child, her love affairs, and her suicide attempts, all of it. This book portrays Wollstonecraft as a woman deeply invested in feeling who found balance with his reason, and not her own, apparently? I don't know. I don't know. I haven't read it, but I think it's suspicious. And it portrayed her as more of a religious skeptic than her writings let on. As scholar Cora Kaplan suggests, Wollstonecraft was a curious legacy that has evolved over time. While she had written in many different genres, people paid more attention to her life than to her writing. While people are trash-talking her and claim that no self-respecting woman would read her work... There were actually new editions of A Vindication of the Rights of Woman published regularly throughout the 19th century. In the first half of the 20th century, we see more women embracing the works of Wollstonecraft, including Virginia Woolf and Emma Goldman. 
But not everyone was convinced. Many were still hung up on her lifestyle, quote unquote. Mm -hmm. That being said, there were biographies published about her in 1924, 1932, 1937, and 1951. And there was a play written about her in 1922. So, you know, I guess it's the, the people that it is this idea of like women with big reputations. They're the ones who like get investigated, I guess. Mm-hmm. So when feminist criticism made its way into academia in the second half of the 20th century, we see a resurgence of Wollstonecraft's work. With the second wave feminism movement of the 1960s and 1970s, six major biographies on Wollstonecraft were published. Are you familiar with the dinner party at the Brooklyn Museum? Uh, you know, it's like that triangle table with the different place settings. No. Definitely go check it out. I forget which floor it's on. I think it's the fourth floor for some reason. Um, But for our listeners, if you're not, you should definitely Google it and get an image. This is feminist artwork by an artist, Judy Chicago, and it was created in 1979 and features a place setting for uh, Wollstonecraft. We'll share a picture when we post uh, when this episode comes out. But her work also had an impact on feminism beyond academia. Ayan Hersey Ali, political writer and author of the memoir Infidel, has stated that she was inspired by Wollstonecraft's message that men and women have equal ability to reason and deserve the same rights. British writer Caitlin Moran, author of How to Be a Woman, has also described herself as half Wollstonecraft, alluding to her influence on, on women writers today. This book is fantastic, and Moran has like a way of like, if you don't feel like you're like really represented by the feminist movement, this is a very good book to read because there is something in there for you and she, she makes note of it. It's a super good book. I really liked it. I read it a couple of years ago. All right. Um, and also Indian economist and philosopher Amartya Sen draws repeatedly from Wollstonecraft in his book, The Idea of Justice. In 2009, Wollstonecraft was chosen by the Royal Mail in the United Kingdom to appear on a commemorative postage stamp. You know how much I love my stamps. <laughs> Several plaques honor Wollstonecraft in a commemorative sculpture by Maggie Hamling called A Sculpture for Mary Wollstonecraft was unveiled in 2020. The sculpture is not a lifelike depiction of Wollstonecraft, and some commentators felt it represented stereotypical notions of beauty and the diminishing of women. So they weren't necessarily big fans. And in 2020, it was announced that Trinity College Dublin was commissioning four new busts of women. They had 40 but they were all of men. There were none of women. Hmm, <laughs> kind of like New sounds... York and uh, the statues yeah. of women, right? <laughs> I was about to say, I'm like, is that here? <laughs> so one of these four would be Wollstonecraft. These sculptures were unveiled in February of this year. So it took a couple of years, but they got them. But all of the legacies and monuments that Wollstonecraft left behind, there is one that is probably the most prominent of all. Give yourself a pat on the back. If you picked up on this earlier in the episode when we talked about Wollstonecraft's second daughter, Mary, and the name of the man that she married, and see if you figured this one out. Dramatic pause. <laughs> Wollstonecraft's daughter is none other than the woman who would go on to become the mother of science fiction in 1818, Miss Mary Shelley, author of Frankenstein. All right, so final thoughts, takeaways. So I love her base idea and the point that like women should be treated like rational beings, right? Like that's base, very good 
very very good place to start right um i definitely think that there are people today who still think that women are inferior but will cite things that are the same in men like the argument that women are emotional and i'm sitting here looking at all the dudes named kyle that have flipped cars after their favorite team lost flipped you know? cars you pick the name kyle like there's a kyle who can like cross state lines with a assault weapon and murdered people because he was too emotional kyle is usually the name for just unhinged dudes <laughs> i, I literally only know one good kyle <laughs> i don't know any so introduce me to that one so i can change my mind because every kyle that i've met has been a real kyle but anyway so i think that everyone should read including myself should read a vindication of the rights of woman i feel like her whole life should have like a subtitle that's like nobody's perfect you know rather than calling her out for like the contradiction the thing that people should you know, should think about things like there isn't one answer that's good for every solution. Sometimes life happens and you have to change your mind. I feel like we should always be open to the idea of like a new way of thinking, right? Yeah, I, I like that. I think that makes a lot of sense. You know, I used to actually teach a selection from a vindication of the rights of women back when I taught world literature. And I even did an episode of my former podcast, Why Do We Read This, about this reading and I connected it to RBG. But mm -hmm. I never had like a full picture of her. So I, I think it must have been tricky to try and live in that time and simultaneously have certain ideals, but to also have to actually exist within this society, mm -hmm. right? A man would never have to deal with what she had to deal with. And when it came to Godwin sharing her story, my guess is that he didn't even realize what sort of impact that would have on her. Like, even if she was already dead, it was like, oh, she's gone. Like, what are they going to do? they're gonna still trash her name right and it just makes me ask like why are men anyway resources and references so we mentioned it a million times now i've said it wrong a couple of times a vindication of the rights of woman by mary wollstonecraft the radical ideas of mary wollstonecraft by susan ferguson eight women philosophers theory politics and feminism by jane duran Defending the Character and Conduct of Mary Wollstonecraft, 1797 to 1803, by the Australian Women's History Network. And then that 10-page section in Trainwreck by Sadie Doyle called Anatomy of a Trainwreck by Mary Wollstonecraft. I mean, the whole book is great, but this section mm -hmm. really is fo what focuses on Wollstonecraft's situation. So let us know what you thought of this episode. Do you have anything to add to the conversation that we might have left out? Or do you have any suggestions for women that we should cover in the future? Follow the podcast on Twitter at Big Rep Pod and Instagram and TikTok at Big Reputations Pod. Send us a message or email us at BigReputationsPod at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Subscribe to us on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Share us with your friends, your families, even your haters. Subscribe and leave a five-star review. Check out our Big Reputations merch. The link is in the show notes as well as in our Linktree link found on all our social media platforms. Be sure to take a picture and tag us when you make a purchase. And remember, we have a Patreon now. Patreon.com slash BigReputationsPod or just check out the link in our link tree. Whether you pledge 2 or $5, we'll give you a shout out in our episodes. And if you choose the $5 level, you'll have exclusive access to our Little Reputations episodes. These are short mini episodes about amazing women throughout history. Next up, Olympe de Gouge. All right, Kim, what quote do you have for us this week? So it's from Mary Wollstonecraft. It's... The beginning is always today. I like that. Yeah. And as always, believe women. <laughs> <laughs>